0: Welcome to Hackstack, the show that proves the meaning of life can be discovered through audiobooks, dominoes, and a big red marker. And if that is too cryptic for your understanding, that means you've failed to listen to the first five episodes. Please do so now. Right. Okay, there you go. Here's (laughs) Coz. Thank you, my friend. I love it when someone else does my dirty work for me. Isn't that great? And isn't there something about that British accent that can make even the rudest things sound oh so pleasant? As a matter of fact, one of the most enjoyable people that I have ever listened to was a Brit by the name of Christopher Hitchens. Now, Christopher Hitchens is no longer with us. He passed away a couple years ago. And uh, as a matter of fact, he was an atheist, Now I believe in God, and God is for real, and he's legit, and it's it's saying something for me to freely admit that I have read most of Christopher Hitchens' books, uh, listened to most of his debates, and he is incredibly well-spoken and very easy to listen to and amazingly funny, so even though we completely disagree on a theological level, I will still tip my hat to him. So let that be a lesson to you, especially in today's polarized and emotionally charged political culture where uh, everything is a dividing line. Uh, You can actually still disagree with someone and respect that person, (laughs) especially if that person has a mesmerizing British accent. Hello, governor. (laughs) Okay. Sorry about that. That is my best British accent. And it actually sounds eerily similar to my Australian accent. So I'll stop right now. Uh, anyway, enough of that action. Let's buckle up for episode number six. Okay. Quick teaser question to start the episode out for you. Um, I want you to think of someone that you just met, and you found out that this person has made their bed every day for 37 years. Uh, just think about that for a second. What sort of character traits do you think this person would have? Uh, so, stew on that, and we'll come back around to that. All right. So let's take a look back over the last several episodes and some of the topics we've covered. Uh we've talked about The Slight Edge, uh, The Miracle Morning, and then the super simple way to create rock solid habits. Uh now I want to start off this show with another mental multivitamin. Now, why is this a multivitamin instead of just a plain old regular vitamin? Well, It's got a bit of everything. It's a little inspiration, a tad motivation. It has some practical applications. And best of all, it ties in pretty well with the slight edge, the miracle morning, and habit formation. So here's the clip. Did you think of a few character traits of someone who made their bed every day for the past 37 years? Well, uh, let's take a listen to Admiral William H. McRaven. As he gave a commencement speech in 2014 uh, to the outgoing class at the University of Texas at Austin. Let's roll it.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, thank you, President Powers, Provost Fenves, deans, members of the faculty, family, and friends, and most importantly, the class of 2014, it is, it is indeed an honor for me to be here tonight. It's been almost 37 years to the day that I graduated from UT. I remember a lot of things about that day. I remember I had a throbbing headache from a party the night before. I remember I had a serious girlfriend, who I later married. That's important to remember, by the way. And I remember I was getting commissioned in the Navy that day. But of all the things I remember, I don't have a clue who the commencement speaker was, and I certainly don't remember anything they said. So acknowledging that fact, if I can't make this commencement speech memorable, I will at least try to make it short. So the university's slogan is, what starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. Tonight, there are almost 8,000 students, or there are more than 8,000 students, graduated from UT. So that great paragon of analytical rigor, ask.com, says that the average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. 10,000 people. That's a lot of folks. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, then in five generations, 125 years, the class of 2014 will have changed the lives of 800 million people. 800 million people. Think about it. Over twice the population of the United States. Go one more generation, and you can change the entire population of the world — 8 billion people. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever, You're wrong. I saw it happen every day in Iraq and Afghanistan. A young army officer makes a decision to go left instead of right down a road in Baghdad, and the ten soldiers with him are saved from a close-in ambush. In Kandahar Province, Afghanistan, a non-commissioned officer from the female engagement team senses that something isn't right and directs the infantry platoon away from a 500-pound IED, saving the lives of a dozen soldiers. But if you think about it, not only were those soldiers saved by the decisions of one person, but their children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Well, I'm confident that it will look much, much better. But if you'll humor this old sailor for just a moment, I have a few suggestions that may help you on your way to a better world. And while these lessons were learned during my time in the military, I can assure you that it matters not whether you ever served a day in uniform. It matters not your gender, your ethnic or religious background, your orientation, or your social status. Our struggles in this world are similar. And the lessons to overcome those struggles and to move forward, changing ourselves and changing the world around us, will apply equally to all. I've been a Navy SEAL for 36 years, but it all began when I left UT for basic SEAL training in Coronado, California. Basic SEAL training is six months of long, torturous runs in the soft sand, midnight swims in the cold water off San Diego, obstacle courses, unending calisthenics, days without sleep, and always being cold, wet, and miserable. It is six months of being constantly harassed by professionally trained warriors, who seek to find the weak of mind and body and and eliminate them from ever becoming a Navy SEAL. But the training also seeks to find those students who can lead in an environment of constant stress, chaos, failure, and hardships. To me, basic SEAL training was a lifetime of challenges crammed into six months. So here are the 10 lessons I learned from basic SEAL training that hopefully will be of value to you as you move forward in life. Every morning in SEAL training, my instructors, who at the time were all Vietnam veterans, would show up in my barracks room, and the first thing they'd do was inspect my bed. If you did it right, the corners would be square, the covers would be pulled tight, the pillow centered just under the headboard, and the extra blanket folded neatly at the foot of the rack. It was a simple task, mundane at best, but every morning— We were required to make our bed to perfection. It seemed a little ridiculous at the time, particularly in light of the fact that we were aspiring to be real warriors, tough, battle-hardened SEALs. But the wisdom of this simple act has been proven to me many times over. If you make your bed every morning, you will have accomplished the first task of the day. It will give you a small sense of pride, and it will encourage you to do another task and another and another. And by the end of the day, that one task completed will have turned into many tasks completed. Making your bed will also reinforce the fact that the little things in life matter. If you can't do the little things right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made. (laughs) That you made. And a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if you want to change the world, start off by making your bed. <laughs> during SEAL training the, students, during training, the students are all broken down into boat crews. Each crew is seven students, three on each side of a small rubber boat, and one coxswain to help guide the dinghy. Every day your boat crew forms up on the beach and is instructed to get through the surf zone and paddle several miles down the coast. In the winter, the surf off San Diego can get to be 8 to 10 feet high and it is exceedingly difficult to paddle through the plunging surf unless everyone digs in. Every paddle must be synchronized to the stroke count of the coxswain. Everyone must exert equal effort, or the boat will turn against the wave and be unceremoniously dumped back on the beach. For the boat to make it to its destination, everyone must paddle. You can't change the world alone. You will need some help. And to truly get from your starting point to your destination takes friends, colleagues, the goodwill of strangers, and a strong coxswain to guide you. If you want to change the world, find someone to help you paddle. Over a few weeks of difficult training, my SEAL class, which started with 150 men, was down to just 42. There were now six boat crews of seven men each. I was in the boat with the tall guys, but the best boat crew we had, was made up of the little guys, the Munchkin crew, we called them. No one was over five foot five. The Munchkin boat crew had one American Indian, one African American, one Polish American, one Greek American, one Italian American, and two tough kids from the Midwest. They out paddled, outran, and outswam all the other boat crews. The big men in the other boat crews would always make good natured fun of the tiny little flippers the munchkins put on their tiny little feet prior to every swim. But somehow these little guys, from every corner of the nation and the world, always had the last laugh, swimming faster than everyone and reaching the shore long before the rest of us. SEAL training was a great equalizer. Nothing mattered but your will to succeed, not your color, not your ethnic background, not your education, not your social status. If you want to change the world, measure a person by the size of their heart not by the size of their flippers. Several times a week, the instructors would line up the class and do a uniform inspection. It was exceptionally thorough. Your hat had to be perfectly starched, your uniform immaculately pressed, your belt buckle shiny and void of any smudges. But it seemed that no matter how much effort you put into starching your hat or pressing your uniform or polishing your belt buckle, it just wasn't good enough. The instructors would find something wrong. For failing uniform inspection, the student had to run, fully clothed, into the surf zone, then wet from head to toe, roll around on the beach until every part of your body was covered with sand. The effect was known as a sugar cookie. You stayed in the uniform the rest of the day, cold, wet, and sandy. There were many a student who just couldn't accept the fact that all their efforts were in vain, that no matter how hard they tried to get the uniform right— It went unappreciated. Those students didn't make it through training. Those students didn't understand the purpose of the drill. You were never going to succeed. You were never going to have a perfect uniform. The instructors weren't going to allow it. Sometimes, no matter how well you prepare or how well you perform, you still end up as a sugar cookie. It's just the way life is sometimes. If you want to change the world, get over being a sugar cookie and keep moving forward. Every day during training, you were challenged with multiple physical events, long runs, long swims, obstacle courses, hours of calisthenics, something designed to test your mettle. Every event had standards, times you had to meet. If you failed to meet those times, those standards, your name was posted on a list, and at the end of the day, those on the list were invited to a circus. A circus was two hours of additional calisthenics designed to wear you down, to break your spirit, to force you to quit no one wanted a circus. A circus meant that for that day, you didn't measure up. A circus meant more fatigue, and more fatigue meant that the following day would be more difficult and more circuses were likely. But at some time during SEAL training, everyone, everyone made the circus list. But an interesting interesting thing happened to those who were constantly on the list. Over time, those students who did two hours of extra calisthenics got stronger and stronger. The pain of the circuses built inner strength and physical resiliency. Life is filled with circuses. You will fail. You will likely fail often. It will be painful. It will be discouraging. At times, it will test you to your very core. But if you, don't, if you want to change the world, don't be afraid of the circuses. At least twice a week, the trainees were required to run the obstacle course. The obstacle course contained 25 obstacles, including a 10-foot wall, a 30-foot cargo net, a barbed wire crawl, to name a few. But the most challenging obstacle was the slide for life. It had a three-level, 30-foot tower at one end and a one-level tower at the other. In between was a 200-foot-long rope. You had to climb the three-tiered tower, and once at the top, you grabbed the rope, swung underneath the rope, and pulled yourself hand over hand until you got to the other end. The record for the obstacle course had stood for years when my class began in 1977. The record seemed unbeatable until one day a student decided to go down the slide for life head first. Instead of swinging his body underneath the rope and inching his way down, he bravely mounted the top of the rope and thrust himself forward. It was a dangerous move, seemingly foolish and fraught with risk. Failure could mean injury and being dropped from the course. Without hesitation, The student slid down the rope perilously fast. Instead of several minutes, it only took him half that time. And by the end of the course, he had broken the record. If you want to change the world, sometimes you have to slide down the obstacles headfirst. During the land warfare phase of training, the students are flown out to San Clemente Island, which lies off the coast of San Diego. The waters off San Clemente are a breeding ground for the great white sharks. To pass SEAL training, there are a series of long swims that must be completed. One is the night swim. Before the swim, the instructors joyfully brief the students on all the species of sharks that inhabit the waters off San Clemente. They assure you, however, that no student has ever been eaten by a shark, at least not that they can remember. But you are also taught that if a shark begins to circle your position, Stand your ground. Do not swim away. Do not act afraid. And if a shark, hungry for a midnight snack, darts towards you, then summons up all your strength and punch him in the snout and he will turn and swim away. There are a lot of sharks in the world. If you hope to complete the swim, you will have to deal with them. So if you wanna change the world, don't back down from the sharks. As Navy SEALs, one of our jobs is to conduct underwater attacks against enemy shipping. We practice this technique extensively during training. The ship attack mission is where a pair of SEAL divers is dropped off outside an enemy harbor and then swims well over two miles underwater, using nothing but a depth gauge and a compass to get to the target. During the entire swim, even well below the surface, there is some light that comes through It is comforting to know that there is open water above you. But as you approach the ship, which is tied to a pier, the light begins to fade. The steel structure of the ship blocks the moonlight. It blocks the surrounding street lamps. It blocks all ambient light. To be successful in your mission, you have to swim under the ship and find the keel, the centerline, and the deepest part of the ship. This is your objective. But the keel is also the darkest part of the ship where you cannot see your hand in front of your face, where the noise from the ship's machinery is deafening, and where it gets to be easily disoriented and you can fail. Every SEAL knows that under the keel, at that darkest moment of the mission, is a time when you need to be calm, when you must be calm, when you must be composed, when all your tactical skills, your physical power, and your inner strength must be brought to bear. If you want to change the world, you must be your very best in the darkest moments. The ninth week of training is referred to as Hell Week. It is six days of no sleep, constant physical and mental harassment, and one special day at the mud flats. The mud flats are an area between San Diego and Tijuana, where the water runs off and creates the Tijuana sloughs, a swampy patch of terrain where the mud will engulf you. It is on Wednesday of Hell Week that you paddle down to the mud flats and spend the next 15 hours trying to survive the freezing cold, the howling wind, and the incessant pressure to quit from the instructors. As the sun began to set that Wednesday evening, my training class, having committed some egregious infraction of the rules, was ordered into the mud. The mud consumed each man till there was nothing visible but our heads. The instructors told us. We could leave the mud if only five men would quit. Only five men, just five men, and we could get out of the oppressive cold. Looking around the mud flat, it was apparent that some students were about to give up. It was still over eight hours till the sun came up, eight more hours of bone-chilling cold. The chattering teeth and the shivering moans of the trainees were so loud, it was hard to hear anything. And then one voice began to echo through the night. One voice raised in song. The song was terribly out of tune, but sung with great enthusiasm. One voice became two, and two became three, and before long, everyone in the class was singing. The instructors threatened us with more time in the mud if we kept up the singing, but the singing persisted, and somehow the mud seemed a little warmer, and the wind a little tamer, and the dawn not so far away. If I have learned anything, in my time traveling the world, it is the power of hope. The power of one person, a Washington, a Lincoln, King, Mandela, and even a young girl from Pakistan, Malala. One person can change the world by giving people hope. So if you want to change the world, start singing when you're up to your neck in mud. Finally, in SEAL training, there's a bell. A brass bell that hangs in the center of the compound for all the students to see. All you have to do to quit, all you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to wake up at 5 o'clock. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to be in the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of training. All you have to do is ring the bell to get out. If you want to change the world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. To the class of 2014, you are moments away from graduating, moments away from beginning your journey through life, moments away from starting to change the world for the better. It will not be easy, but you are the class of 2014, the class that can affect the lives of 800 million people in the next century. Start each day with a task completed. Find someone to help you through life. Respect everyone. Know that life is not fair and that you will fail often. But if you take some risks, step up when the times are the toughest, face down the bullies, lift up the downtrodden, and never, ever give up. If you do these things, the next generation and the generations that follow will live in a world far better than the one we have today. And what started here will indeed have changed the world for the better. Thank you very much. Hook them horns.
0: That's a pretty cool speech, huh? So before listening to that, what type of character traits did you think someone would have that made their bed for three decades straight? Did you maybe think that someone is lazy and unreliable? I'm guessing no. And if you're anything like me, you probably thought of someone that is disciplined, reliable, you know, they've got their act together and they're hardworking. Now, the interesting thing to note is that last trait, hardworking. Now, if someone made their bed for 37 years straight, hardworking is not an unreasonable trait to assign to that individual. But it, it's still interesting to me because, you know, making your bed isn't actually hard work. It, it probably takes less than one minute. Uh, but like A- Admiral McRaven said in his speech, you know, you start off the day completing one task, And what that does is very similar to the Red X hack that we talked about last episode. You know, it gives you it gives yourself a constant reminder that you are a person that is organized. You've got your game together, your discipline, and you just flat out get things done. You start to internalize all of these traits. Now, that's a lot of bang for your buck for something that takes less than one minute to do. You know, so you should consider making your bed every day as part of your morning ritual. I mean, I I fully admit that this, this may be a little hard for you, especially if you have a significant other. And said significant other doesn't get up insanely early like you, you know. But you could still make it work. You know, when you get home from work or whatever, you can just make your bed then. And you still have a couple hours to enjoy that symbolic reminder of the new you and the new normal that you are creating for yourself. So that's, that's just something to think about. And I want to tell you a little bit about the specifics of my morning routine as maybe this will help you further refine your morning routine. So first, let's take a very quick step backwards and look at how we are sleeping the night before. Now, this may sound a little funny, But as we will hear in the next episode when I talk specifically about sleep hacks, uh, just know this, that perhaps the single biggest contributing factor to sleep problems is the use of artificial lighting and electronics at night. Okay, so these devices emit blue light, which on the wavelength light spectrum basically tricks your brain into thinking that it's daytime. So electronics, whether it's TV, a Kindle... Which was my big thing uh, a computer or an ipad these all these things emit blue light so if you are having trouble sleeping or your sleeping patterns are a little jacked up this could be one of the major major culprits now i've tried several different techniques to figure out and play around with the best way that i could find for me to wake up in the morning and once i stumbled upon this uh, blue light hack information I I actually turned it around and used that to my advantage and and it's now part of my not only my get out of bed protocol but my go to bed protocol. I try my best not to use electronic devices before I go to bed because I want to give myself the best advantage of of having a good night's sleep. So no electronics before bed, but in the morning, you know, when my sleep app uh timer goes off, I immediately start to look at my phone and I open up another app. Now I have the the light settings on my iPhone cranked way up. So when I'm staring at my screen, the blue light actually helps me wake up. And I'm actually pretty impressed with with how quickly my eyes are able to adjust and just how quickly uh, I'm able to start to wake up. Because the bright light emitted from my phone is actually helping to tell my body that, hey, it's time to get up. Now, forget about that it's pitch black outside. Um, my phone is is basically playing a, a good trick on me. And it's a trick that I want to be played. Now, the app I'm looking at is not Candy Crush or Instagram or, or Facebook or anything like that. Uh, actually, looking at Instagram and Facebook first thing in the morning is probably a big no-no. I mean, do you want to really spend that valuable, precious time uh, looking at what someone did last night that's most likely trivial, or or worse yet, comparing yourself to to somebody else and what they've done? Uh, now, quick side note, I, I feel there there's two types of comparisons. There is a good comparison and a bad comparison. The bad comparison is one of uh, jealousy and envy. Oh, you know, Why does this person have this job or this car or this that and I don't? Why does this person look this way and and they don't even have to work that hard at it and and I don't look that way, you know? Oh, it must be nice to have whatever. And, you know, anytime someone's using the phrase, uh, it must be nice, you you should just go ahead and replace that phrase with I'm jealous of or I'm envious of. So if you ever said that phrase, it must be nice, just kind of check yourself or at least be prepared to defend if you ever meet me, how, how that phrase screams anything but jealousy or envy. So anyway, that's the bad type of comparison. The The good type of comparison is more one of, I don't know, I guess admiration and respect. So for example, after listening to the commencement speech by Admiral McRaven, uh, I'm comparing myself to him and think, man, I don't do that. Um, what can I do to be like that? Not in a jealousy kind of thing, but in a way to emulate something that I think is good and admirable and, and something that if I incorporate that into my life, I could benefit myself and those around me. You know, In short, I want to learn from people like that. So in my opinion, that is a good type of comparison. So Sorry for the side note that's kind of me getting on my soapbox a little bit, but I'm definitely the app I'm opening up is not Facebook in the morning it is an app called the five minute journal, which is a a very quick mini goal setting slash self reflection tool and, and I'll put a link on the show notes uh, I think it's like $4 and 99 cents. I know that's like crazy expensive for, for apps, but I think it's worth it. Uh, if you don't want to spend the money, the app really consists of five simple questions. Uh, three are in the morning and two you do at night. And the morning questions are, I am grateful for, and then you fill in three things. So for example, I'm grateful for my wife, my kids and in my house. All right. Um, The second question is, what would make today great? And then you you type in three things that would make today great. So that's a a little mini goal setting session right there. First thing in the morning. Well, you know, if I completed this project, if I called this person on this sales report, um, if I exercised in the morning, you know, so you're already in that mindset of being thankful and setting goals. Now, the third question is a daily affirmation, um, which I actually do a little bit differently and I'll talk a little bit later. And then uh, the, the three questions that you can answer on this app at the end of the night are, what are three amazing things that happened today? So it's, it's just a, a slight twist on being grateful. And then the question I really like is, how could I have made things better today? Uh, which is a really good way to reflect and kind of tweak your processes and, you know, look at some points where you maybe had stress in your life and you're like, well, you know, was that stress unavoidable? Could I have done something? And uh, that's a really, really good way to, uh, to borrow a business term, uh, do some process improvement in your life. So, you know, back to me waking up in the morning. So I'm looking at this light on my phone and, and I'm staring at it and the light is starting to wake me up. But at the same time, I'm also starting the day out with some self-reflection. I'm being thankful for the blessings that I have in my life. And, you know, this whole process, we're talking like four or five minutes. So it took me a long time to explain that, but it's a really quick and effective way. So so then after that, I immediately go to the bathroom and I go into uh, a pretty <laughs> pretty detailed ritual of things that... that mainly are hacks I've discovered and are mainly involved with, um, a particular ailment that kind of, I don't know, plagues me for, for lack of a a better word, but it's, it's basically, I have a bad back. So because of my bad back, a lot of my morning routine is dedicated to getting my back loose and healthy and stronger. So You know, when I get up, I I go to the bathroom, I drink a cold glass of water, I spray some magnesium oil on my back to loosen it up. Um, I'll take a warm shower and then a a quick burst of cold shower just to kind of wake myself up. You know, I'll, I'll hit the treadmill for about five minutes, then I'll do 10, 15 minutes of back yoga and then some core strengthening exercises like planks and side planks, things like that. And then after that, you know, I'll have a few minutes of quiet time. I'll, I'll pray, read my Bible, do some meditation, some, something like that. So so as you can see, a lot of my morning routine is, is dedicated to making sure my back is healthy because when my back's in pain, it just makes every other aspect of my life kind of miserable. So I just want to make sure that that back is healthy. So a bad back or it's not so bad anymore because of some of the things I've done, but being aware of your weak points is a really good point. So, so you might not have a bad back, but you may have a something, right? Everyone's got a something. Maybe it's a bad elbow, a bad knee, a bad shoulder, uh, some other physical ailment, or, or maybe it's a, an emotional or or mental uh, ailment or shortcoming. So, so maybe you have ADHD or maybe you are a bit of the worry wart type or you're anxious. So so you may have to dedicate uh, larger chunks of your morning routine to dealing with that. So maybe you need extra quiet time in the morning, whereas I need to spend you know, a total of 30, 40 minutes working on my back and maybe only 10 or 15 minutes of quiet time. Maybe it's the complete opposite for you. Maybe you really, really need that morning time to... Kind of quietly reflect and calm your thoughts and really prepare for the day. So, so tweak your routine accordingly to um, you know. Obviously, you want to play up to your strengths, but you really want to overcome any kind of weaknesses that are uh, specific to you. But the real crux of this episode is what I promised in the, in the tail end of last episode. So we're we're going to talk today specifically about how you can supercharge your motivation level to get things done. And to do that, we're going to talk about one of the most critical and tricky F's of the 5S, namely faith, also known as your ultimate purpose in life. In short, why do you do the things that you do? You know, everything else that I have talked to up until this point has seemed more like a how to, like a like a step by step, you know, if you want to succeed, then follow these three easy steps. If you want to fix your life, follow these three easy steps. So think about if you owned a house and you had a nice backyard and a good patio and you wanted to build a wood deck on the back of your house. You know, first, what's the first step? You know, you, you buy the lumber and then you buy the tools, and then you get a blueprint or directions, and then you build it. And then what? You have a a nice wood deck with lawn chairs and patio and a fire pit and all that good stuff. But big deal. Now what? You know, what do you do with that? I mean, do you do it because you want to show it off to other people? Do you want to have quiet time and enjoy nature? Do you want to invite people over for a barbecue and build friendships? And, you know, how you you answer these questions can say a lot about a person because some people have a vision of what it means to succeed and then they reach their goal only to be unfulfilled. You know, people lose lots of weight and then they're still unhappy People can scratch and claw and take risks and save money and make the right financial decisions and reach all their financial goals only to remain, what, unsatisfied. And that's the last thing I want for you guys. So how can we avoid these pitfalls? Well, we really need to think about the why we are doing these things. And it's a concept I call push your purpose up the ladder. So to start to explain this concept, let's start with a hypothetical. Say you have a person that has never really exercised all that much and you ask them or challenge them to run a half marathon. Now, maybe this is a pretty good description of you. You've never run, you've never exercised, then all of a sudden someone asks you to run a half marathon. So after you get done laughing at them, you say, yeah, right, so From my perspective, guess what? You know what I'm going to ask? The million-dollar question. So if I were to give you a million dollars, do you mean to tell me that you wouldn't train and run a half marathon? I get it. Yes, if someone were to give me a million dollars, I would train and run and eat all the right food, and I would finish and complete that half marathon. But look, it's a hypothetical question question. No one is going to give me a million dollars to do that. Okay, fair enough. So now let's have a little thought experiment. So let me ask you this. If I were to give you a million dollars, would you take it with the caveat knowing that if you accept the million dollars, your life would end prematurely by 10 years? So right, I give you a million dollars. If you say yes and take it, you're going to knock 10 years off your life. Now, I would hope most of you would say that no amount of money is worth any portion of my life. And that's fair enough, and I, I agree. But if we go back to the fact that 40% of our decisions are habitual, then if you are eating poorly, if you're not exercising, or you're smoking, then whether you realize it or not, you are, in fact, taking 10 years or more off of your lifespan. So if you said you wouldn't run, a half marathon because that million dollar question is just a hypothetical. But then on the back end, you said no amount of money is worth losing 10 years of my life. Well, those things are starting to contradict because your life is worth more than a million dollars, but yet the choices you are making with your healthy lifestyle or lack thereof are costing you. So let's go with 10 years off of your life. That's 10 years that you don't get to help people in need. That's 10 years that you may not get to see your kids graduate from high school. Those are years you won't get to have and hold your grandchildren. That's 10 years of mentorship and wisdom that you have stripped away from your family and your legacy. Now, is all that worth some fried food and some ice cream and sitting on the couch? You know, do your actions tell the world that cigarettes or french fries or whatever it is are more important than your family. So remember back to the slight edge you know these decisions most of the time they're easy to do and they're easy not to do. So I'm going to play a clip right now that is very similar to that it's it's kind of a yes and no you know you're always saying yes and no to certain things but what you may not realize is when you say yes to one thing you might be saying no to another. Uh, This is a clip from a great book that I just got done with. It's called Procrastinate on Purpose by Rory Vaden. He is actually the guy that interviewed Hal Elrod uh, concerning The Miracle Morning. It, it's a great book. It has to do more with productivity and you know his, his catchphrase for people that produce a lot of results efficiently, he calls them multipliers. But what I want you to pick up from this clip is... Uh, the story of saying yes and saying no. And there's there's one story at the very end where he talks about being persistent and how someone still told him no. It's a pretty cool story, but I want you to focus in on the yeses and the noes. So let's roll it.
2: You have a tremendous fear of saying no. In fact, in most cases, you are outright terrified of uttering the actual word out loud. No. You run, you hide, you whimper, you scamper, and then at the end of the day, after it all, you compromise so much of your life simply because you don't have the courage and the strength to say no. And so what do you say? You say yes, but it isn't a real yes. It's a reluctant yes. It's an uncommitted yes. It's an I don't really want to, but I guess I'm going to yes. And that kind of yes isn't really a yes at all. That kind of yes is really more like a maybe. And maybe is an awful place to be in life. Maybe is definitely indefinite. Maybe is unsure, uncertain, uncommitted, unexcellent. Maybe keeps you stuck. Maybe means you are not moving toward what is in front of you and you are also not moving toward something else. Maybe always and only means you are moving backward. Furthermore, Allowing other people to live in maybe is a disservice. Your allowing them to be a maybe means you don't care enough about them to help them commit to a direction. It means you are condoning indecision. It means you are blessing what is mediocre. Powerful people do not live with maybe. A yes is great. Yes is a beautiful word. But so is no. No is strong. No is clear. No is resolute, no allows others to move on with their lives, and beyond that, no helps bring another person closer to a real yes. But maybe is unacceptable. You aren't helping anyone by being a reluctant yes. A reluctant yes is more of a disservice than a favor. A powerful person knows that there is emotional energy tied up in any unmade decision. A multiplier knows that you can't accomplish greatness with kind of, sort of, or maybe. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Quit living in maybe. But Rory, saying no is so hard. No, it's not. Say it with me. No. Come on, say it with me right now, out loud. No. Say it. No. Say it proudly. No. Say it at me. I don't care. No. Doesn't that feel good? Say it one more time. No. Good for you. See, you did it. Actually, contrary to what you might think about yourself, you've been saying no all along. You might think that you are a people pleaser. You might believe that you are a kind and willing steward, always available to serve the needs of everyone else. You might even take pride in the fact that in all of your life, you've never said no but you are wrong. Let me clue you in on something that took me a long, painful time to learn. You are always saying no to something. Anytime you say yes to one thing, you are simultaneously saying no to something else. You cannot say yes without also implicitly saying no. By saying yes to listening to this book right now, you are quietly saying no to an infinite number of other things you could be doing. When you say yes to volunteering for that position that you don't really want to take, you are quietly saying no to the fitness goals you set for yourself. To a multiplier, the question is, am I saying yes to the things that create more time tomorrow, and am I saying no to the things that don't? Having context and consideration for what you are quietly saying no to does help tremendously in being able to actually turn down a person or an opportunity that you are presented with. Because we are creatures of emotion, however, it still can be rather difficult. But there is more good news that will help. On February 15, 2006, at 4.45 in the afternoon, I wrote an email to one very famous author. I caught wind that he was not too far from the area I was, and so I requested a meeting with him. I knew it was a long shot, but I figured, what the heck? On February 17, 2006, at 5.52 in the evening, I received my first rejection. It was not from the author personally, but from a person in their office. The thing that shocked me was not only did they respond to me, but responded rather quickly and pleasantly. I received two paragraphs with useful information, a redirection to additional resources, and it included uplifting language such as, thank you so much for your email, which I have shared with the author, and although meeting with you at this time will unfortunately not be an option, the author truly appreciates you taking the time to write and deeply wishes you all the best. Well, of course I had to respond to that. So, on February 18th, 2006, at 12.27 p.m., I replied thanking them for such a thoughtful and articulate response. This time, I offered to come work for them for free. On Saturday, March 11th, 2006, at 2.10 p.m., the author responded to me personally. I thought, surely, I was in. It was, however, another rejection. But this time... It was personal. It made me feel really good that the author actually took the time to address me directly. And yet again, the language was so encouraging and uplifting. Here is some of what it said. Thank you for your email and kind words. I sincerely appreciate your invitation to meet. Right now, I've promised my spouse that I will not add any discretionary get-togethers to my local schedule. My calendar has become so tight that I need to protect the increasingly limited time I have at home for family time. I hope you can understand my need to do this. Then, once again, I was directed toward helpful resources, and the letter closed with, I truly wish you all the best. I let it rest for a while. Then, in May of 2008, I happened to be back in that same area and thought that enough time had passed that it would be good to approach this author again and I thought perhaps they would be impressed that I had kept such detailed records of our initial encounters that when I requested another in-person meeting I copied the entire original set of email strings all into the same email And one week later I got another response this time it was from a different person in the office and this time well I was rejected again the email said Author is truly appreciative of all of your support and is encouraged by your consistent desire to meet. At this time, it is not a possibility because author is tied up in intensive research and writing of the next book. We hope and trust that your career is progressing along nicely and do keep us up to date. At which point I thought to myself, wow, these people sure know how to make a guy feel good and still lay down a rejection. On July 28, 2011, I had a sure-fire plan. I had just finished the manuscript for Take the Stairs for the deal that I had secured with a major New York publisher. I was certain the author would appreciate not only that I was becoming a real author and not only that I still had our entire correspondence history, but they would be so honored that I asked for an author endorsement. So I sent an advance copy of the Take the Stairs book along with our entire communication history and a short update of all I had been up to with a quick request for an endorsement. On August 28, 2011, I got a physical letter with a handwritten signature in the mail. It said, Dear Rory, congratulations on writing your first book. I'm flattered that you would ask me to write an endorsement. Rory, my practice on endorsements that I require of myself is that I become thoroughly acquainted with the ideas or that I personally know the author before deciding whether to endorse. This allows my endorsement to really be an endorsement and enables me to make a thoughtful and credible comment in the event that I do decide to endorse. Given the backlog of commitments already on my plate, I'm afraid I lack the bandwidth to add another piece to the stack clamoring for my attention having been through the adventure of writing i fully appreciate the exhilaration exhaustion and anxiety of publishing a book i extend to you my warmest and best wishes for great success with the take the stairs book and i hope you can understand yours sincerely author man i got told no and i loved it handwritten custom tailored on thick letter stock It was the best rejection ever. Fast forward a little further. On October 4th, 2012, I was speaking in the very city where the author lives. At this point, I was now a New York Times bestselling author. The author has a copy of our entire email communication. They've sent me a handwritten letter. They have a copy of my book. We were on the same bestseller list at the same time. This author knows who I am. I am sure of it. After all these years, I'm finally going to get a chance to meet this person. I sent a note laying out two options. The first is to come watch me speak. The second is for me to come meet them anywhere they would like for just 30 minutes. What happened? I did not get to meet the author. But I also did not get a rejection letter either. This delightful young woman approaches me after my speech and says, Rory, it's really great to meet you. Unfortunately, author could not come here, but did want me to stop by and send regards. Author has read Take the Stairs and was rather impressed by it. Our entire office wishes you all the very best. This time, the author sent someone from their office physically to where I was speaking to turn me down in person. What does this entire story prove? Other than I'm incredibly persistent and this person really doesn't want to meet with me, it proves this. You can say no and still be nice. This author has been rejecting me for seven years, not to mention that it's been via multiple media, and I love it. I'm more endeared to them than I ever have been before because of the way they are telling me no. They are telling me no with honesty. They are telling me no with integrity. They are telling me no with class, and they are clearly telling me no. They aren't misleading me. They aren't lying to me. They aren't making me wrong. They aren't getting mad or annoyed at me, and that makes me feel like they aren't really rejecting me. They just don't have the time to meet. And I'm fine with that. I can appreciate that. Heck, I'm taking lessons from it. Now that I'm an author and a husband, I can relate to not having availability for discretionary get-togethers and strangers wanting your endorsement and time. Guess what? So can all the people you know. People can take no, but they want to be treated with dignity. They want to be treated honestly, and they want to be treated carefully. So tell them no, and if you are a big giant softy who is afraid of upsetting people, then make it the biggest, bestest, nicest, classiest no they've ever gotten. And if you have a hard time saying the actual word no, here are some honest, straightforward phrases to help you deliver the bad news. As much as I would like to help you, I simply can't right now. I'm sorry, I just much prefer not to. I'm afraid I simply lack the bandwidth right now to commit to doing this. Unfortunately, it's not in my best interest to take this on at the moment. I'm really stretched thin right now, and I promised myself I wouldn't take on anything else. To be honest, this is just something I really don't want to do.
0: So that was actually a sneak peek at some productivity uh, topics that we will cover later. But it's basically just having the courage to say uh, no to things that uh, you you really don't want to do. And in particular, if you're a, a helper or have a kind heart and you you like helping people out, uh, sometimes you are asked to do things and you want to help, so you you say yes. And since you say yes, you get asked to do more things and more things and more things and your plate fills up. And what you tend to forget is that when you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else. And that's just the concept I really, really wanted to take from that clip for this particular issue. So back to pushing your purpose up the ladder, I'm going to illustrate this. And, and you'll notice a lot of these illustrations, they either have to do with fitness or or business or sports analogies. Uh, those are usually pretty easy for most people to relate to. So that's why I choose to do that frequently. Uh, so again, we're going to go back to um, a, a fitness analogy. So so let me show you the progression of the, the why or the purpose of exercising going from the bottom rung of a ladder all the way up to the top. So, so let's focus in again on fitness and we're going to ask the question of why would someone exercise and eat healthy and we're going to push those answers up the ladder. We're going to push our purpose up the ladder. So what are some answers that people could potentially give? And these are both a combination of of negative and positive, you know, the carrot and the stick, uh, reward and punishment, that sort of thing. So we're going to start at the bottom rung and push our way up to the top. So again, if the question is, why would someone exercise and eat healthy? Here are some potential answers. Okay, On the low rung, you have things like, well... I'll eat, right, because I don't want to be a glutton. Well, you know, gluttony is one of the seven deadly sins, and pretty much any ideological worldview from atheist to secular to religious uh, frowns upon uh, gluttony in excess. So, hey, I don't want to be a glutton. That is a reason to exercise and eat healthy. Okay, another reason. My spouse wants me to exercise, So that's not necessarily a great reason. That's basically you're saying, I want to exercise because it's someone else's goal for me to do that. That is a really, really bad reason. That is a low rung on the ladder reason. What's another one? I want to look better in a swimsuit. Well, okay. So basically your motivation here is vanity. So so those are three real quick examples of of low rung on the ladder, you know, first step on the ladder reasons for doing something. So the why is pretty low. So we want to push that up the ladder, okay? So so these reasons are a little bit better. All right? Why do I want to exercise and eat right? Well, here's some examples. I want to beat my personal record at my 5K. All right? So you get a sense of accomplishment, it's your own goal. Uh, it's something to strive for and achieve. Now, here's another reason. I have great self-discipline, in eating right and exercising is just one more example of that. Okay, that's that's pretty good. You know, we talked about internalizing some of these characteristics. That's that's decent. Uh, wh- what about another one? I want to have more energy. So I'm exercising so I can have more energy to do other productive and fulfilling things. I think that's a pretty decent reason. I, w- I would consider that, uh you know, middle rung on the ladder. Uh, well, let's, let's push it up even further. Why should someone exercise and eat healthy? I don't want to die prematurely. All right. So we already talked about that with a million dollar and running a half marathon and, and is a million dollars worth 10 years of your life. So So, you're starting to get to the higher rungs when the reason you're doing these things is, uh, you know, big picture. Okay. I don't want to die early. If I die early, uh, I miss out on a lot of stuff. For example, why should someone exercise and eat healthy? Well, I want to be around this world for a long time so I can be there for my kids. Or conversely, put in the negative way, I don't want my kids to grow up without a father or mother. Obviously, if you die early, your kids will not have a father or mother. And then finally, near the top rung of the ladder, when we keep pushing that that up, is, um, okay, why should I exercise and eat healthy? Well, I want to see my grandkids. I want to spend time and hold my grandkids and play with my grandkids. And you could be saying this, and your grandkids might not exist yet. Heck, you might not even be married, but... You're looking down the road, and you realize that that is a good thing. I mean, there's something incredibly unique about the grandparent-grandchild relationship. I don't care what your political convictions are, what your religious convictions are, uh, or even if you don't have any religious convictions, grandparents love grandchildren. It's It's just universal. Now, here is where things get a little interesting and a little tricky. Uh, Because there, I guess, there's some controversy on what the top rung of the ladder is. If you are uh, an atheist and do not believe in God, uh, I would argue that pretty much something along the lines of grandchildren is, is the top rung of the ladder. Like, you can't get more of a purpose than that. And when I say you can't get higher than that, I mean specifically on this, why would someone exercise and why would someone eat healthy? You know, you're basically talking so you can live longer and spend time with your family or somehow enriching uh, your family or, or I guess the world in some way, shape or form. But for the person that believes in God, there is actually one more step in the ladder that you can push your purpose to. So if the question is, why should I exercise and why should I eat healthy? My answer is going to be my body is a temple and on loan from God. And I need to respect God's property as best as I can. You know, something along that line. So to me, if you're pushing your purpose up the ladder, you can't get any higher than God. So pushing your purpose up the ladder is your takeaway hack from this episode. So whenever you're faced with one of those slight edge decisions, you know, should I do this or should I not do this? Something that's easy to do. It's also easy not to do. Uh, Maybe you know you should do something, you just don't feel like doing it. A real good way to make sure you get done what you need to get done is stack up a really, really high purpose against a shallow action. So if you're about to make a slight edge decision, say it's you're trying to quit smoking, or probably more common is people are eating really, really bad and it's killing them slowly, and any one meal won't necessarily hurt you, but the accumulation of those meals will really hurt you. And and once you realize that, and you're about to sit down and make a food choice, if you stack up that high purpose, well, I want to live to see my grandchildren. Hey, this this is God's body. I need to take care of it, right? You push that purpose up as high as you can, and you kind of challenge that purpose versus what you're about to do. It becomes really, really easy. Like, okay, I've got the choice right here and right now to eat some nasty fried, super trans fat food. Or I can choose not to and make a choice for the sake of my grandchildren. And when you put it in a perspective like that, you know, you're saying no to food, but you're saying yes to your future. You're saying yes to your grandchildren. You're saying yes to God. Those kind of things. All of a sudden, these these decisions become a lot easier. And in my opinion, that's how you supercharge your motivation. You make these simple decisions, just like no brainers. Now, one more trick of this hack of, you know, pushing your purpose up the ladder. I want you to internalize that on a daily basis. And and this is how I personally do it. And I recommend you do that too. Uh, let's rewind to uh, the Miracle Morning Routine. There's there's one part of the routine that we haven't really talked a whole lot about. And and I think this actually separates uh, long-term success from, from short-term uh, results. And that's the part I didn't tell you about when I was going over some of the things I do in the morning. So I have an affirmation statement that I actually keep in my shower... Uh, I printed it off on a piece of paper, I put it in a little plastic sandwich bag, and I use some thumbtacks and I tack that above my shower. So every time I go to the shower, it's a memory trigger and I look at that piece of paper and I realize that I need to read this affirmation. And I think it's really, really important that you work on that because you really want to start to internalize your purpose and why you are doing what you are doing, because it's a constant reminder to keep your motivation level high. And it really, really ties into your identity. And if we go back to the fact that, you know, most of the decisions we make, we don't even realize we're making it. If you say yes to one thing, you're saying no to something else. I think this really ties into it because, identity is such a part of who we are but we never really like sit down reflect and think about that and I personally notice it the most in in mothers uh, especially stay-at-home mothers you know it's like a really hard job and it's really demanding and it's thankless on a lot of levels and I'm guilty of this as well I'm sure other husbands are as well but you know the the wife and the mother go underappreciated, you know, the husband's away at work and, you know, the breadwinner and maybe potentially getting some accolades and praise and, you know, adult interaction. And, and the mother and the wife are just at home thinking, you know, I'm just a mom, what do I do? I'm, I'm just raising kids. Now, never, never mind that there's like all sorts of articles written that try to quantify the value of a stay at home mom, you know, they're really worth you know, over six figures based on all the things that they do. And, and, I, and I believe that. Um, but <laughs> I can guarantee you, mothers aren't really thinking about that when they're at home. Uh, they're just thinking about how stressful it is. And, and I know if if it's not put in check, a lot of stay at home moms just think, well, I'm just a mom. This is this is a trivial job. You know, anyone can raise kids. When in actuality, raising kids is probably the highest calling that a person can have. I mean, that's your legacy. That child could change the world. But what does someone think? Oh, no big deal. I'm just a stay-at-home mom, you know, just average and common. And even though that's not verbalized, that's what they may be thinking. So unknowingly, that's their affirmation statement. And this happens in all sorts of ways. People do this without realizing it. Oh, I'm, I'm just an accounting clerk, or I'm an area rep, or I you don't know, my job, I just answer phones. And it, doesn't it start to, to, to sound like, you know, who's the world's worst boss? Well, yeah, that would be you. So the best way to not sell yourself short inadvertently is to work on your affirmation statement. And you work on it, and you work on it, and you tweak it. And once you have everything right the way you want it, you just read it day after day. Me personally, I put in the shower. So I know I'm pretty much going to read that every day. So I'm going to go out on a limb right now. And I'm going to read you actually read you my affirmation statement to maybe give you some ideas and just to give you a feel for um, how this can help your motivation level. And uh, believe me, um, I'm a little nervous to read this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it because I think it can help you guys out. Because the statement actually may sound a little arrogant, but trust me, when I first wrote this, I wasn't many of these qualities. Um, I hadn't even hardly run at all. So um, this, this is more, it's you're affirming yourself and also giving yourself something to shoot for. So, all right. So here is my affirmation statement. It reads like this. And you guys already know that I believe in God. So there's, there's, some, there's some catchphrases in there, but don't let those scare you away. All right. So here it goes. I am a treasured child of the one true God and the creator of the universe. I am a runner, athlete, scholar, philosopher, father, and husband. But above all, I am an evangelist. I put the needs of others first, especially my family. I rise quickly from my slumber, relentlessly focus on my goals, and I do the things that others are unable or unwilling to do. I do these things not for self-glorification, but to be a good steward of the gifts and talents God has given in order to build his kingdom. All right, so there you go. Now you intimately know me. Um, again, I w- <laughs> when I wrote that, I wasn't a runner. Definitely was not an athlete. Scholar, uh, I don't know, a little questionable, a lot of audiobooks, but uh, still a work in progress, uh, everything. Um, evangelist, that basically means if, if I see something good, if I know something good, whether it's God or the gospel or audiobooks or hacks, I tell people. So if you like the show, you should be thankful that I'm an evangelist and like to tell people about good stuff. I mean, that's just kind of who I am and what I do. The rise quickly from slumber. I use the word slumber just because it's different than getting up. It was a little more catchy to me. And if you couldn't tell, the miracle morning is a huge part of my life now. And the other thing is, I really, really like uh, the phrase "I do the things others are unwilling to do" because what happens is when you when you keep reading this every day, I'm going to be honest. At first. First off, it takes you a while to kind of come up with something. It's almost like a wish list. What do you wish you were like you're You're probably not actually there yet, but what do you wish you were like and then and then you read it and then slowly you start to become that and And why this ties into supercharging your motivation when you when you are faced with those slight edge decisions, that statement will i don't know it, it rings in my head like okay wise guy, you, you, you tell yourself this every day, here is a chance to show that you do the things that others are unwilling to do. Well, go ahead and do it. You know, you claim to put your family first, you have a choice. Now you could go see your friends, you could go hang out at the bar or you could go home. Guess what? You read that thing every day. Well, if if you don't want to make yourself a liar, you go home and spend time with your family. So that's the gist of it, and I really, really, really encourage you to work on an affirmation statement. So instead of, for example, I'm just a mom, you could say, I have the most important job in the world. I'm raising three precious children that need me desperately, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And that's just to give you some ideas. I mean, heck, just being a parent There is no one on the planet that your kids are going to look up to more than you. But, right, you're just a mom. Oh, you're just a dad. No big deal. Pretty common, folk. No, this is big stuff. This is important. Don't underestimate these affirmations. So we're going to close up this episode with one final clip. And we're going to talk about the top rung of the ladder. You guys are all philosophers now, so we are going to talk about the question that has been talked about for centuries on end, namely the existence of God. So if you're an atheist, please pay attention, man. I I love you guys. I actually probably like talking to you guys more than I do believers because you keep me honest. If there's a shortcoming in my worldview, I guarantee that you guys will point it out. So this next clip is truly for everyone. Because even if you think this God stuff is hogwash, I guarantee you, you've never heard evidence like this before. Yep, and you heard me. I said evidence. It's like scientific evidence. And if you're unconvinced in the end, that's okay. At least you you heard me out. You heard what I think is, is really powerful evidence. And I really want to play this because um, I just want to give everyone the opportunity to push that purpose uh, up the ladder as far as possible. So after hearing this, if, if you're not convinced that there, there is that top, top rung of the ladder, it's, it's just a myth. That's okay. We'll still be friends. Again, we can, uh, disagree and still be good friends, but I think at the very least you'll find this to be an interesting clip. And this clip is by a gentleman by the name of Frank Turek. And he has actually debated, uh, Christopher Hitchens, who I mentioned earlier in the show. And if I can find it on the show notes, I'll I'll maybe try and find a a link uh, to that debate. I think they did more than one. It's, It's quite entertaining and quite lively. So without further ado, here is a clip that tackles the question that has interested philosophers for centuries. Here you go.
3: The evidence for the Big Bang is good. Some of the evidence is right here. Okay? Let's talk about this evidence and we'll talk about the second law of thermodynamics, the S first. The second law of thermodynamics says the universe is running down. It's running out of energy. In other words, as time goes on and on, the sun is burning out and all the stars are burning out. All the energy is going away. You guys have seen these magazine covers, Time magazine, Newsweek magazine. It'll say something like on the cover, when will the universe end? Well, they always say it will. They say, don't worry about it. It'll be several billion years from now. But ultimately, that sun up there is going to burn out. Ultimately, those stars, all the hydrogen in the stars is going to be used up. And we're not going to have any more energy. The universe is going to go to heat death. Now, here's why this shows the universe had a beginning. Because if the second law of thermodynamics has been in place forever, ever since the universe began, if it did begin, then, well, let me put it this way. Suppose the universe didn't have a beginning, but the second law of thermodynamics has always been in place. Would that sun still be burning today? No, it would have burned up a long time ago, right? Because it only has so much energy in it. And so if it was, if it's been burning from all eternity, it would have burned out a long time ago. Just like your car. You only have a finite tank of gas in that car, right? Suppose you got a 20 gallon tank. You put gas in it, right? How far can you go on your 30 or 20 gallon tank? Well, you know. You figure it out by the miles, right? Well, let's suppose that you put gas in that car an infinitely long time ago and had been driving it from all eternity. Would you have any gas in it now? No, you would have burned out a long time ago. Well, that's the way the universe is. The universe is running out of energy, and if the universe didn't have a beginning, all the energy would be used up today. Another way of thinking about it is think about it like a dying flashlight. If I were to take a flashlight right here and have batteries in it, and I turn the flashlight on and I put it on the podium, and we come back tomorrow for the 9 o'clock service... Is the light coming out of that flashlight still going to be as intense as it is tonight? No, it might be dimmed or it might be gone completely, right? It might be dead. Why? Because there's only so much energy in those batteries. Well, think about the universe as having batteries. And it's running out of its energy in those batteries the longer it goes on. If the universe didn't have a beginning, the batteries would have died out a long time ago, right? Another way of looking at it is that the second law of thermodynamics brings things toward disorder. You see those cubes up there? Look at the cube on the left. See how nice and ordered that is? Now you look at the cube on the right. That's what nature tends to do to things. Let's suppose we took the cube on the left, the very ordered one, and we went down to the ocean, we threw it in the ocean, and let that cube tumble in the waves, okay? What's it going to look like if we pull it out of those waves, say, a few minutes later? Probably going to look like the one on the right. If I took that cube on the right then and threw it back in the waves, is it ever going to come out looking like the one on the left? Probably not. Why? Because nature brings things toward disorder, not order. Things break down. Human beings break down. You know, when you get older, you get dresser disease. That's when your chest falls into your drawers. Okay? We break down. So if the universe didn't have a beginning, in other words, it's been here from all eternity, we we would have all disorder now. There'd be no order. But there's still order left, right? So the second law of thermodynamics points to the fact that the universe had a beginning because we still have energy, we still have order. You with me? All right. Let's move on to you in surge. The universe is expanding. If time were reversed and we could watch the universe... We would see all the galaxies collapse back to a point of nothing. In other words, when scientists look through their telescopes, they can see a redshift in the light. It shows that all those galaxies are moving away from us. This is what Edwin Hubble saw from Mount Wilson Observatory in Mount Wilson, California in the late 1920s. He discovered the redshift in the light from all these galaxies. And he said... If all those galaxies are moving away from us now, and if we could reverse time, we would see all those galaxies collapse back upon themselves. So mathematically and logically, they were nothing. And then the universe leapt out of that into being. So once there was nothing, and then bang, the galaxies leapt into existence, or I should say the explosion, which ultimately resulted in galaxies, leapt into existence. In fact... Einstein had a hand in this, which we'll talk about here in a minute. The R in surge stands for the Radiation Afterglow. And what the Radiation Afterglow is, it's the remnant heat from the initial Big Bang explosion. These two scientists operating in Homedale, New Jersey, in 1965, had this big horn antenna. You see that big goofy antenna behind them? And this antenna was picking up static... No matter where they turned it in the sky. And they couldn't figure out where it was coming from or why it was out there. And then they went out in the antenna and they looked inside and they saw that there were pigeons nesting in this antenna. Jersey Shore pigeons. So they actually had these traps to trap these pigeons. They trapped the pigeons. They cleaned all the pigeon dung out of there. And they went back inside and they said, that probably solved the static problem. Went back inside, static was still there. No matter where they turned that antenna... They found the static. What they had discovered was the remnant heat from the initial Big Bang explosion. It's still out there. It's just a little bit above absolute zero. Everywhere in the universe, it's there, the heat. To give you an illustration, you ever watching TV at night when the lights are out? What do you see when you turn off the TV? Kind of like a glow coming off the TV. That's heat. Coming off the TV, that's what they found from the initial Big Bang explosion. It's still out there. These two guys in 1978 won Nobel Prizes for that discovery. In fact, my uh, parents, just about three years ago, moved right here to Fort Mill after living 65 years in New Jersey. Because as you know, at age 65, it's federal law. You must move south. Okay? Okay. <laughs> If you live in the north, you've got to move south. So they moved down here to be, of course, close to the, their only three grandkids, my three sons, Steph's three sons. And um, they threw a little bit of a party, uh, friends of theirs did, for my parents before they came down here. And uh, these, kind of, these people are kind of highfalutin. They had some pretty high-powered people there. And uh, one of the persons that was there was Robert Wilson, who is the guy... On the left in that picture, he's actually at my parents' going away party. And my mom told me about it and said, "Yeah, that this Robert Wilson guy? He won, like, some sort of Nobel Prize. I said, The Robert Wilson? The guy who discovered the radiation afterglow? Mom's like, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, this Robert Wilson was at a... Where my mom said, it was kind of funny because she this Robert Wilson was talking to some Jersey girl at the... Uh, At the party and uh, after she had done was done talking with Robert Wilson she walked over and joined my parents who were talking to somebody else and uh, my mom said hey you know that guy you were just talking to uh, was Robert Wilson that you know he won a Nobel Prize in physics and the lady's mouth just opened and she got pale as a ghost and my mom said well what's the matter. And the lady said, I just told him he didn't know what he was talking about. (laughs) Typical Jersey girl, right? You don't know what you're talking about, buddy. Are you talking to me? You want a piece of me here? You know, I mean, typical Jersey girl. Turns out now that my parents, they've moved here now. I have two younger sisters. One is uh, 38 and the other's 43. Within the past year and a half, they have had three kids between them, their first children. So now, I mean, my parents moved down here when my teenage kids could care less whether they're here, right? But now all the babies are back in New Jersey. So what's my mom doing? She's going out of her mind, right? All the babies are up there. By the way, my, uh, my oldest sister, um, she married a man who got lymphoma a number of years ago, about six years ago. And went to Sloan Kettering in uh, New York. And uh, the doctor said, does not look good. But he's alive today. And he became a Christian through it. There is a miracle. And of course, they never thought they could have kids after that. But Matthew, which means gift, came in January of 2007. My sister's 43 years old. Healthy kid, big kid it's just a blessing it's another sign from god isn't it all right now a lot of people to until this discovery was made, thought that the universe was static and never had a beginning, that it was eternal. Here's what an agnostic astronomer said after this discovery was made. No explanation other than the Big Bang has been found for the fireball radiation. The clincher, which has convinced almost the last doubting Thomas, is that the radiation discovered by Penzius and Wilson has exactly the pattern of wavelengths expected for the light and heat produced in a great explosion. That put the nail in the coffin of people who thought the universe was static and never had a beginning, that it was eternal. It's always been here. But there's more evidence, not just the radiation afterglow. Scientists said that if the radiation afterglow does exist, it ought to have very fine variations, temperature variations in that afterglow. So in 1989, they sent up a satellite to discover it. And for three years, it circled the earth, and they looked for these temperature variations in this radiation afterglow, and they couldn't find anything. They kept looking, they kept looking. He said, it's not there. He said, look, if the Big Bang's true, it has to be there. Kept looking, kept looking. You know what they finally figured out? They were not looking precisely enough. In 1992... They fine-tuned their measurements to the point that they found that the temperature variations were so precise, they were down to one part in 100,000. The leader of the expedition, a man by the name of George Smoot, said, we found the fingerprints of the Creator. He said, if you're religious, it's like looking at God. Stephen Hawking called it... They found the holy grail of cosmology. This is the greatest discovery of cosmology, which is the study of the beginning of the universe. It's the greatest discovery in cosmology. It may be the greatest discovery of all time. In fact, this man, George Smoot, the man I just said, he said, if you're religious, it's like looking at God, wrote the book, Wrinkles in Time. And just last October, a year ago this month, He and his partner won Nobel Prizes for discovering this great, what we call, great galaxy seeds. The reason we call them great galaxy seeds is because these are the temperature variations that allowed the galaxies to form. Now, the final letter in our acronym is E in SURGE. It's for Einstein's Theory of General Relativity. And Einstein's Theory of General Relativity says time, space, and matter are co-relative. That you can't have one without the other. That time, space, and matter came into existence together. Once there was no space, once there was no time, once there was no matter, and then it leapt into existence out of nothing. As I've said before, Aristotle had a good definition of nothing. He said, nothing is what rocks dream about. That's nothing. And the entire space-time continuum leapt into existence out of that. Einstein's theory has been proven accurate to five decimal points. Now, if Einstein were here today and you were to say the universe didn't have a beginning, you know what he'd probably do? He'd probably do this. (laughs) It did have a beginning. If it had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. Now, Einstein, for a while, didn't want the universe to have a beginning. In fact, he called his general relativity calculations irritating. Irritating, Robert Jastro, an agnostic astronomer, wrote, "That's awfully emotional language for a discussion about some mathematical formulas." What did he mean by that? Because scientists don't always tell you the truth because they don't want the conclusion that the evidence leads to to be true. It's irritating to them personally. They don't want there to be a God. Einstein, for a while, didn't want that either. But in 1929, Edwin Hubble invited Einstein out to his observatory in Mount Wilson, California. And he said, Al, come on out. Take a look in the telescope and you will see what I see. Einstein came out, saw the red shift in the light, saw that the galaxies were moving away from us. And at that point, he went, "Uh uh-oh. See, for about 15 years before that, after he developed general relativity theory, you know what he did? He put a cosmological constant in his equations to keep the universe from having a beginning. He wanted the universe to be eternal and static, so he put a cosmological constant in there. In order to put the cosmological constant, some big mathematical formula, he had to divide by zero. Now, what do you learn in second grade? You don't divide by zero. But the great Einstein divided by zero. Why? Because he didn't want there to be a beginning. But when he saw the confirming evidence of the red shift in the light, even Einstein said, I can't keep this charade up any longer. He said, I repent of the cosmological constant. It was the greatest mistake in my professional career. I don't care about the details now. All I want to know is the mind of God. Now, Einstein, to our knowledge, never became a Christian, never even became a theist. He was a pantheist. When he was asked, what kind of God do you believe in? He said, I believe in the God of Spinoza. Spinoza was a pantheist from the 1600s. A God, a, a God of a pantheistic God, as you know, is God of God is all. God is me. God is you. God is the grass. God is the trees. Now, that doesn't seem very logical to me. Here's Einstein's evidence pointing to a theistic God Yet, personally, he says, I believe in a pantheistic God. What does that tell you? People don't always follow the evidence, do they? Even their own. Now, there's one more point about the universe having a beginning. In addition to the second law, universe expanding, radiation afterglow, great galaxy and Einstein's theory of general relativity, there's a philosophical line of evidence that the universe had a beginning. And it's called the Kalam cosmological argument. Now, stay with me on this. All right? Let's look at a timeline, right? Let's say, from your perspective, this would be history right over here. You're looking at a timeline, right? And we don't know if the universe had a beginning at this point. Let's just say there's a timeline and somewhere over here represents history. And as we come through history, we get to Adam and Moses and, you know, Jesus maybe being here and Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and all the great heroes of the faith. And you ultimately get to today. Here's today right here. Okay? Tomorrow's not here yet. When tomorrow comes, we add another day and the timeline gets longer. Right? And the day after that, we had another day. Time line gets a little longer. That's not here yet. Here's today. Question. What is the definition of an infinite? What is it? Something that has no end. Goes on and on and on. Right? No end. Well... Does our timeline today have an end? Yeah, Yeah, right? Here's today. It's got an end. So this cannot be an infinite timeline, can it? See, if there were an infinite number of moments before today, today never would have gotten here. And you can't be at the end of an infinite. So no matter how far back we go, we know that this timeline had a beginning. Whether it was billions of years ago, thousands of years ago, let's leave that question to the side for a second. However far back it went, it had to have a beginning. Because you can't be at the end of an infinite, can you? But we are today. So this is known as the Kalam Cosmological Argument, and it states that time cannot be infinite. And if you notice something, if you look in your Bible... The Bible even says this in several places. Let me just point out one of them. Uh, when Paul is writing his Swan Song, what's the last book Paul wrote? Does anyone know? Second Timothy, exactly. Here he is in Second Timothy chapter one verse nine. It says God who has saved us called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. There are other places where it says God is eternal. In fact, Leonard was singing a song tonight, right? About eternity. That God is in eternity. And he began time. He began time. When he began time, he began space and matter as well, just as Einstein said. All right. All right. Finally, let's point out of, of, of how people deal with this. This is Robert Jastro. you see on the screen. Jastro is an agnostic. He's the guy that sits in the same chair Edwin Hubble sat in when... Uh, Hubble invited Einstein to the observatory. Same place, Mount Wilson, California. He's in his 80s now. And he's not a believer, he's an agnostic. Here's what he says in his book, God and the Astronomers, which he wrote in 1978, and he revised in 1992. In this book, he goes through some of the evidence I just went through, the surge evidence. Here's what he says. He says, the astronomical evidence leads to a biblical view of the origin of the world. The essential element in the astronomical and biblical accounts ...of Genesis is the same. In an interview, he went on to say this. Astronomers now found they've painted themselves into a corner... ...because they have proven by their own methods... ...that the world began abruptly in an act of creation... ...to which you can trace the seeds of every star, every planet... ...every living thing in this cosmos and on the earth... ...and they have found that all this has happened as a product of forces... ...they cannot hope to discover, now get this... That there are what I or anyone would call supernatural forces at work is now, I think, a scientifically proven fact. Why? Why is Jastro admitting there are supernatural forces at work? Because he knows that the entire natural realm was created out of nothing. So if it's not a natural cause that brought it into existence, what must it be? Something beyond the natural, something supernatural. That's what the word means. Supernatural means something beyond the natural. Jastro, an agnostic astronomer, admits this. Here's the bottom line to the entire thing. If the universe had a beginning, then it must have had a beginner. The evidence leaves us as one of the following two options. Either no one created something out of nothing, which is the atheistic view, right? Or someone created something out of nothing. Now, which view is more reasonable? No one created something out of nothing or someone created something out of nothing? Someone, of course. Here's the question to ask an atheist. Do you have an atheist friend of yours? They say, I'm an atheist. Ask this question. If there is no God, why is there something rather than nothing at all? Or you can say it this way. If there is no God, why does anything exist? If they say, well, the universe has always been here. You say, surge. Second law, universe expanding, radiation afterglow, great galaxy sees, Einstein's theory of general relativity. And we'll throw the Kalam cosmological argument on there as well. The end of infinite time is impossible. If you can answer those six lines of evidence, then maybe you can say the universe is eternal. But if you can't answer that evidence then the best evidence points to the fact that the universe had a beginning. If it had a beginning, it must have had a beginner. Make sense? We're just following the evidence where it leads. Now, you say, how do atheists respond to this? Poorly. <laughs> Let me give you how Richard Dawkins responds to it. This is Richard Dawkins' Right here in the God Delusion. His most recent work, just about a year old now. Here's what he says. He says God needs an explanation. Who made God, basically. However statistically improbable the entity you seek to explain by invoking a designer, the designer himself has got to be at least as improbable. God is the ultimate Boeing 747. What does he mean by that? Because sometimes we're known to say that... To believe that, say, life was created by natural law is like believing that a tornado raging through a junkyard creates a Boeing 747, right? That doesn't make any sense, does it? Tornadoes don't put things together. They rip things apart. Well, Dawkins is trying to tell us that if you're saying that God created this incredible universe, and he admits it's incredible, he admits it appears designed, he says it's only apparently designed, we haven't even gotten to the design argument yet, but we'll do that next time. He says that, well, if you've got to have a God to design it, then somebody has had to have designed God. And that's even more improbable than just believing that by luck this universe came into existence. In fact, he uses the word luck several times in the key chapter in his book. Luck! What's luck? Is that a cause? This guy claims to be a scientist. How did that happen, Richard? Well, it was luck. Luck! What's that? His main argument is who made God. Right? Look, if you ever get that question, here's how you answer it. Nobody. Nobody made God. Why? Because God is unmade. Look, there's two possibilities. Either, well, let me back up. Since something exists, something must have always existed, right? Right? Because you can't create yourself, can you? You have to exist prior to creating anything. So since something exists, we exist, something must have always existed. There must be something eternal out there, right? Okay? So if that's so, we have to exist to say it so we know we exist. If that's so, then there's only one or two possibilities. Either the universe has always existed or something outside the universe has always existed. Now, we've just given evidence that what? The universe has not always existed. Time, space, and matter came into existence out of nothing. So it must be something outside of time, outside of space, outside of matter that has always existed. That's the answer to the question. Now Dawkins tries to go on and say, well, you can't have a simple being. And when Christians mean simple, they don't mean that he doesn't have power. It means he doesn't have parts. God does not have parts. John 4.24 says what? That God is spirit. God doesn't have parts, so he can't break down. He's not, he's, not, he, he's not subject to the second law of thermodynamics. He doesn't have parts. And he says you can't have a simple being create this incredible universe. And why not? Why can't that be? In fact, immaterial things can create material things. Is there a difference between your brain and your mind? When somebody says, I want to pick your brain, say, you're not a surgeon. You're not going to pick my brain. What do they really mean? I'm going to pick your mind. In other words, I want to get a thought from you, right? Your mind is immaterial, even though it's associated with your brain, yet your mind can write a letter, can it? Or write a book. So you go from an immaterial thing, your mind, to a material thing, a letter or a book. If there is an immaterial reality then that immaterial reality, i.e. God, can create this material universe. It's certainly a better explanation than luck, (laughs) which is what Dawkins essentially says. He admits they have no idea. They don't have what he calls a crane for physics. In other words, there's no system by which they know about. There's no natural way that the universe could have been created physically by any known law of physics. In fact, all the laws of physics came into existence at the Big Bang, so they have no idea. And he's claiming that we're deluded. I'm claiming that he appears to be deluded because he's not following the evidence where it leads. All right, in fact, let me point out a couple more things that we're going to finish up here. I'm not making this up. This is another explanation from the National Geographic magazine in October 1999 self generating universes. Multiple universes grow like branches from a tree trunk in a model that allows the universe to create itself. What? One scientist in the article admitted he said it's sort of like we're brushing our ignorance under the rug of the very early universe. Exactly. One atheist is very, very honest. This is Anthony Kenney, who's an atheist. He wrote this. He said, according to the Big Bang Theory, the whole matter of the universe began to exist at a particular time in the remote past. A proponent of such a theory, at least if he's an atheist, must believe that the matter of the universe came from nothing and by nothing. Exactly. The universe did come from nothing and by nothing if you're an atheist. That's not an explanation. That's not a good one in my mind. There must be a cause where that universe came from. In fact, Robert Jastrow, the guy I was talking about before, the agnostic who wrote God and the Astronomers and said there are supernatural forces at work. The very last line of his book, God and the Astronomers, says this. After going through all the evidence, this is worth the price of the book. He says... For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He's about to conquer the highest peak as he pulls himself over the final rock. He's greeted by a band of theologians who've been sitting there for centuries. (laughs) Now, question. Am I up here quoting the Bible to say, here's why you ought to believe in creation? All right. That's the cosmological argument.
0: Okay, there you go. We're wrapping up this episode number six. I think it's a really critical episode. Uh, Most of the episodes before this have been a how-to and a step one, two, three, which is critically important. But what is equally important is to really, really think about the why you're doing those things and to push your purpose Up the ladder, and whenever you're faced with a decision, either big or small, please, please, please uh, push your purpose up the ladder and stack that purpose up against the decision you're about to make. And that is one way to make the decision a whole lot easier, and it will supercharge your motivation. So, that is the main hack for the show just to push up your purpose as high on the ladder as you can possibly take it. Homework assignment. Think about making your bed as part of your normal routine. Uh, definitely work on your affirmation statement. Remember, it's a, it's a work in progress. Uh, put some things on there that you want to become but maybe aren't necessarily there right now. It'll give you something to shoot for, give you extra motivation, and solidify uh, your reasons for doing things. Uh, maybe even ponder that big question of God and then books mentioned on this show uh procrastinate on purpose by rory vaden frank turk the speaker you just heard he wrote a book called i don't have enough faith to be an atheist kind of a catchy title and i'll put some more things in the show note like the uh, five minute journal and a few other things so check it out and we'll see you next time hello governor that's how you pronounce it you crazy yankee get with the program until next time keeping hacking and stacking oh i can't even handle you right now bye bye